This is session one and the introduction to the teaching series uh, why we must uh, the attributes of God, why we must think rightly about God. Will you pray with me before we begin? Lord, my heart is cold and so empty. Won't you come and light the fire within? I echo Ruth Fazell's prayer. Father, my heart is cold and empty. And unless you come and light the flower, it will just stay embers. I sense that, Father, might, I might find this journey uncomfortable at times, but I want you to know I intend to make it. I want to match my intentionality to yours. You love me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and I want to come to the place where I do that towards you. Lord, I see that there is so much more of you, of your glory, so like Moses, I cry, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And I come the only way I can, Father, hurting, empty-handed, expectant, knowing that I will be healed and filled, asking this in the name of your dear Son, Jesus, and for his sake. The purpose of this series is personal transformation, it may look like a series on God, but at its heart is a change in your centre. A change from having yourself as the focal point to having God at the very centre of your thinking and believing. That you might live in Romans 12, 1 and 2 and glorify God from there. Heaven, where we are headed, will be heaven because the Trinity is there. Father, Son and Holy Spirit and we will dwell with them forever that makes it eternal bliss heaven is not about a split level home and three cars in the drive it's about who we will spend eternity with now is our time to get acquainted with them and we need to know all three members of the godhead i hope this little series will help you to begin to something a journey of discovery into the heart of god for yourself to get the best out of this, some of the questions I put to you may challenge you. They may dig a little deep, but there's no one around but him, so you're quite safe to allow yourself to be exposed to his light and be healed. Because that's your problem, beloved. You need healing, and he's right here and ready to do just that. That said, let's begin. A man-centred theology will leave you discontented, hungry and powerless. A God-centred theology will empower you in every area of your life because the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That comes from the Westminster Catechism. But such a statement contrasts sharply with the humanistic philosophy of the world in which we live and sometimes in the denomination to which we belong. What is being said is that creation exists for the glory of its creator, that man is the crown jewel of that creation and as such possesses a unique capacity to worship, glorify and honour his maker and have fellowship with him. The lost glory of this fallen world and in no small measure the church of Jesus Christ today is that God is no longer central to our existence, nor is he magnified and adored in the way he deserves to be. A.W. Tozer, a prophet in the 20th 
20th century said this, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation more tragic. That's taken from the knowledge of the holy. But this surely is the current state of the church at the, at the start of the 21st century, if we're honest with ourselves. We are totally unaware of our own poverty of spirit. We desperately need a radical rethink. It's imperative that we think rightly about God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the triune God. This is not about us, it's about the majesty of heaven. Ours is to stand open-mouthed in astonishment and wonder. When Jesus, the visible member of the Godhead, walked the earth, the first thing we find about him was when he was in the temple as a young boy, they were astonished and amazed and they wondered. Luke two, forty-seven to 50 As he's released into ministry on earth, they marvelled, they were astonished, they were in awe, they wondered. Mark one twenty-seven, two twelve, five twenty, and five forty-two. The healing of the human soul begins by restoring him to his rightful place of amazement, astonishment, awe, and wonder. We have a deep need to worship something much bigger than ourselves to recognise that though he became a man, he is not man-sized. He is vast. We will never come to the end of finding out about him for eternity. And we need to get eternity back in our thinking because that's what he's planning for and that's what we were created for. At Jesus' last interview on earth with the Apostle John, Observe John's reaction when he sees the glorified risen Lord, the one whose friend he'd been when he was on earth, upon whose breast he'd lent, with whom he'd lived. We find it in Revelation 1, 12-17. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and hair were like white, like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. John sees with his physical eyes the glory of the risen Lord. And his reaction is not unusual. It's the norm for those that have seen him. They fall down before the glory. Consider these instances. Abraham 
sees and hears Jesus in Genesis 17.3. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him. He falls down before the glory. Daniel 10.6-9 and he describes what he sees of Jesus. His body was also like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the voice of a tumult. And he says, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face towards the ground. Daniel again falls down before the glory. He saw and heard awful things. Dictionary definition of awful, a feeling of amazement and respect mixed with fear that is often coupled with a feeling of personal insignificance or powerlessness, the ability to inspire dread or reverence. That'll be it. We are all starved for his glory. The hunger in every human heart is for this, a return to the glory of God, to its blazing, all-consuming, fiery place at the very centre of our being. We were created to worship him in his glory. Worship is what God is all about and God is what worship is all about. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we become what we worship. There's an exchange. And there's a war on for our worship, love it. Matthew 4 verse 9, And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Satan endeavours to persuade Jesus to do a trade, make an exchange. Worship me, he tempts Jesus, and I'll give you all of this. He still uses the same tactic. The problem for us is we become what we worship. We can trace every human aberration and all our restless searching for security, significance and self-worth back to this one thing. We've done a trade, an exchange somewhere. In order to get our perceived needs met, we've exchanged the glory of God for something other than him. We've put our trust in something or someone else. Every disorder of our lives, body, soul or spirit, sexual, emotional or psychological, can be traced back to the exchange of the glory of God and worship of him to something other than him. In our desperate search for security, identity and belonging, we have replaced the creator with that which he created. Worship is our response to what we value most. We are all always worshipping something, exchanging the creator for something he's created. Worship says, this is what I value most. This person, this thing, this experience, this whatever is what matters most to me. It's the thing of highest value in my life. It's time, beloved of God, to refocus, to recenter ourselves in order that he becomes the thing of highest value in our lives. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 from the NIV. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, 
Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. John Piper in his little book, Seeing and Savouring Jesus Christ, says this, The reason for wasting so much space on a universe to house a speck of humanity is to make a point about our maker, not us. The physical eye is meant to say to the spiritual eye, not this, but the maker of this is the desire of your soul. So for you, personally, right here, right now, let me ask you a question. Just what is the desire of your soul? Your answer will reveal at what throne you worship and whether or not you've done a trade or an exchange. Remember, you become what you worship. If you find yourself at the throne of self, you're indulging in self-idolatry. Everything will revolve around you and your needs. Everything. You may have a love of fast cars. Question, do you possess the car or does it possess you? Your gifting can become an idol in your heart. Not difficult. He has to peel the guitar off of you before he can get to you and get you to relate to him. Ouch factor 10 on that one. He desires that you come to know and experience him as the all-sufficient one. The one who meets your every need. The one who will give you what you most require. Security, identity and belonging. And that you will begin to live and walk into your destiny from that place of approval, acceptance and assurance that he bestows upon you as his child. To know him is to love him. To love him is to worship him. To deliberately place him at the centre of our lives. Making him our Lord as well as our Saviour will result in personal transformation. No longer self-centred, but God-centred, our lives will become filled with adoration, thanksgiving, praise and, yep, worship. To know him, love him, worship him is to enjoy him, to bless him and worship him is why we exist. God created us for fellowship with him. His passionate desire is that we return to first love on his terms. Your heart, beloved of God, will know no lasting peace, no home, no rest, until it finds its rest in him. I find no secure place for my soul except in you, Augustine said. I find no secure place. We can know the Bible and answer questions on Bible challenge. We can fool ourselves and agree with what it teaches. But that in itself does not open us up to God in the way in which he so desperately desires. He wants us to know him. He invites us now to open our hearts and receive him afresh. In this, our attitude of receptivity will determine our destiny. Jesus gives to those who receive him. Our attitude will most definitely determine our altitude.
So we have to let him. The question is, will you let him, that is? Will you let him into the deepest part of your being, the inner sanctum of your heart, where you haven't allowed anyone access? That part of you that you defend, where you fear rejection because it happened way back in the past and you've determined it isn't going to happen again. Where, like the maiden in the Song of Songs, you're behind that wall. It's her wall, by the way, not his. He desires entry, but he's forced to gaze upon her from a distance through the window because there's a wall preventing his entry. Song of Songs, 2-9. You get to choose, beloved. He will not force himself upon you. Will you let him take that wall down in order that he might have a heart relationship with you? Can you trust him? Will you trust him? So we're about to embark on the most exciting journey of our lives, exploring the nature of this great God whom we serve. And we do so with great awe and trepidation, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews twelve twenty nine. What comes into your mind when you think about God? That's a question. I suggest you write it down and then you can come back to it later and see how your view has changed. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing in our lives. How we see him, how we relate to him and how as a result of this we live our lives and we portray him to those around us. Someone wrote in 1776, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. Life in the spirit, beloved, is about displacement. Displacing wrong thinking with right thinking. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You may be about to undergo some displacement stroke replacement therapy. The writer to the Hebrews had this to say to the Jewish believers in Hebrews 5, 11-14. I've a lot more to say about this, but it's hard to get it across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. By this time you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet here I find you need someone to sit down with you and go over the basics on God again, starting from square one, baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food long ago. Milk is for beginners, inexperienced in God's ways. Solid food is for the mature, mature who have some practice in telling right from wrong. That was from the message translation. Thinking rightly about him means that as created beings, we must elevate our image of him, our worship of him and our fellowship with him. And in so doing, we will develop the mind of Christ. We must ask ourselves what mental image we currently hold. Do I have a right view of him? What is my current view based upon? Is it the same as it was last year, the year before? Is it time for an upgrade? Am I afraid of approaching him? Do I fear what he might require of me? Do I see him as a taskmaster, a schoolmaster, a withholding God? Is he to me a God who is near or a God afar off? Is he God Almighty 
O God Almighty. Do I know that I am both his beloved child and his maturing son? I pray that this little series will cause you to think deeply about your relationship with him and seek him for any adjustments he may deem necessary. Beloved, do not try to rush this process. Savour it as though your life depends upon it, because it does. Slow down, enjoy him, and enjoy yourself enjoying him. King David said this in 2 Chronicles 6.18, But will God in very deed dwell with man on earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house I have built. King James Version. David had a right view of God. His journal, the Psalms, display this. And he saw that God desires habitation, living with us, not visiting with us. It's his eternal plan. We cannot think of God without awe, without majesty, without infinity. For whatever he is, he is infinitely. He is without any finite or measurable limits. He's exceedingly great. He's indescribable and he's indescribably wonderful and beautiful. He's kind and he's good. He's gracious. He waits. He's so patient. He's altogether lovely. David it was who also said in Psalm 34, 3, again in the King James, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. To magnify may mean one of two things, to make something look bigger than it is or to see something as big as it is. For instance, you can magnify your quarrel you had with your friend or you can magnify the love that you have for her or him. We laugh, but the truth really is we are always magnifying something. So question, what are you currently magnifying? And is it empowering or reducing you? Is it introducing doubt and unbelief? Is it good for you or bad for you? This magnificent creator God who lays out the heavens as a curtain, who dies for us, who calls us, stoops to lift us, heals us and calls us into intimate fellowship with himself, who gave his beloved son for us and places us in him, this is the person whose nature we shall be exploring. He is altogether lovely. And we desperately need a right view of him. We need to think rightly about him. For we're going to spend eternity with him. His goal for us is union with himself. Frederick Faber said this. Only to sit and think of God. Oh, what a joy it is. To think the thought, to breathe the name. Earth has no higher bliss. Thinking about him, meditating on who he is, is what renews our mind. So we'll be spending some time considering what we're exploring. We will be having some Selah moments, which means pause and calmly think about that. I urge you, therefore, to begin, if you don't make it a practice already, to set aside time to think deeply about God. Just who is he for you? Julian of Norwich said this, His will is that we should busy ourselves 
in loving and knowing him. We should busy ourselves in loving and knowing him. It begs the question, what is it currently we spend our time, what we busy ourselves with? And how much of it will be of use for eternity? Jesus said it this way in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, really knowing and understanding how he thinks and feels, always has eternity attached. It will take eternity and we will never fully know him. But then he set eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 Eternity is not something we will step into when we die. We're already in it. We were born into it. Every living soul, saved or unsaved, is eternal. And it is our inheritance to spend eternity with him. We were created for fellowship with him forever. Our bridegroom king and he wants us to know him before he comes for us and the wedding takes place. He says, know me. I want you to know me. To know him is endless because he is and he initiated it. He initiates, we respond not the other way round. He is the creator, we are the created, and he wants us to know him. What a delight. He himself wants us to know him. He is a God who reveals himself to his people, from Genesis to Revelation. So what comes into our minds when we think about him is the most important thing about us. As the ages close upon us, as the Holy Spirit prepares our hearts for eternity with our Bridegroom King, let this revelation of his desire towards you melt your heart to be wooed again. Because he says, I want you to know me, to know my holiness, know my perfection, know my joy, know my love. Know my goodness, know my plans, know me, know me. I want you to know me. And I have given you my Holy Spirit for this express purpose. A.W. Tozer, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more significant than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. And Bernard of Cluny. Brief life here is our portion. Brief sorrow, short-lived care. The life that knows no ending, the tearless life, is there. There, God, our King and portion, in fullness of his grace, we then shall see forever and worship face to face. Beloved, think deeply on these things before we move on. God bless you.